is literally no big, big gun in this business who didn't specialize. Like the closest guy to a non-specialist that I ever knew who was incredibly successful was the late, great Jacob Robinson. He was a, pretty much of a generalist, but I'm telling you. But Jake, he, was, he was wicked smart though. Like uh, I don't think most people could do what uh, he did. Like, Hey, listen, I've talked to people. I can't say too much, but I, I've talked to people about Jake. And the truth is he was this unbelievable guy, not just smart, but empathetic, great personality, legitimately wonderful person to his clients. But he was working angles, all legit, all fair, all good. But he was working angles on clients that you needed to be a genius to keep track of. Right. But that's like a superhuman is right. the practice he was operating. The most inspiring stories from today's most successful mortgage brokers. Join your host, Scott Peckford, on I Love Mortgage Brokering. Hey, Broker Nation. Scott Peckford here. As you know, Jake Rambowitz passed away unexpectedly in 2021. And Jake's been on the show three times and was an amazing guest and always loved chatting with Jake. And my producer, Nikki, thought, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we did a best of show with Jake, so some clips from Jake's shows. And I thought, man, that's a great idea. I gotta be honest, so it was a tough listen, just because I you know kind of what happened. And so I went through this and it was like, oh man, I missed that guy. And he was an amazing human, amazing mortgage broker, was always involved in the community, out of mortgage broker community. You know, he used to have this hashtag Island Beef for life. We even sent him a mug with that. And so I just wanna say like, you know, uh, you are definitely missed, man. There's a hole in the community from when you were here with us. But I thought the best way to honor you would be to take some of the wisdom that you shared and put it together for the community to have a listen. There's not many sponsors on this episode. I just want this to all be about Jake. This first section was from episode 119, which was in 2016. So it's the first time that I ever had Jake on the show. He shares how we got into the business. He shares some lessons from failure, when to say no to a file, and he shares some advice for new brokers. We'll check that out, and then we'll check out the next one. Hey, Jake, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Awesome. So can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the mortgage business? Absolutely. So about 14 years ago, my brother was already two years into the business at the time. I was doing a vastly different job as a research analyst for a small consulting firm. And he just asked me kind of on a whim, uh, we were having a coffee, he said, hey, why don't you join with me? You want to kind of go be your own boss eventually, which is always my dream, my goal. And he got me into it. He taught me the ropes. And then I, uh, I separated from him to a degree. And we've been kind of focusing on our own things, still collaborating on a lot of projects, but working independently. And so that's basically how I was given this opportunity. And so you were in your other job, your analyst role, you were an employee, correct? So you got paid like a regular salary? Nine to five. And then so how was it to make the transition from nine to five to, you know, what, whatever to whatever to make who knows what? Yeah, that's a great question. So the first thing he said to me was, and he always says it to this day, this is not a nine to five job. And I repeated that mantra to many people, but that's what makes this job so amazing. I don't even call it a job. It's really a career, a passion, if you will. Um, how was it? It was not easy. It was not easy because, you know, we're talking 2002, 2003, the market was just starting. The idea and concept of brokering, especially online, wasn't really all there yet. Although brokers were around for a long time, we didn't necessarily have maybe the best reputation out there, not us, but individually, but as a broker community. So we were kind of, things were just kind of getting started. And then we've been riding that market wave since then. But it was definitely a challenging first two to three years to kind of learn all of the various things. To this day, I still can't tell you I'm an expert in everything in this space. And that's good because I always want to learn in it. 
there's always something else to kind of pick oh, up yeah. and learn. And okay, so when did you realize that you really were okay? This career was for me. First of all, in my previous job, I did the nine to five thing. I did presentations to you know CEOs and various kind of chief level individuals for on my reports. I didn't find it interesting because even though I really cared about what I was researching, I wasn't really feeling that cold kind of passion about it. Right. So one very early on, I had this uh, I had this great Turkish client named Vlad. He bought a cheap little condo for 140K. And when I first met him, I realized I'm kind of talking to somebody on my level. I'm not talking to a banker, to a CEO, to a you know manager or what have you. I'm talking to just a guy. And I kind of became friends with him. And, and I followed his kind of career path as well as he's been growing. But very early on, I realized this was the job for me because I really like meeting people and getting out there and helping people. And, and that kind of grew at, in the first year, second year, when I went to these people's apartments and places and real kind of dingy areas where they're living and helping them buy their dream homes and seeing their eyes light up when they're like, wow, so we have the loan and it's all because of you. Walking out of that to this day still is the best high I can ever get because I feel like I'm helping these people learn and empower with what they're doing with their money and also achieve their dream of home ownership, which sounds cheesy, but it really is a dream for a lot of folks. Because you've been a homeowner for a long time, you forget. You don't know what that feels like. Completely. And people who are, you know, renting and, you know, not like I don't have any problems with renting. If someone's ultimate goal is to rent and it makes financial sense for them and they're doing well otherwise, great. But people who are renting and don't want to rent anymore or are getting kicked out by the landlord or their neighbor's bad or, or even they just want that sense of ownership. I want to mow my own lawn and do my own thing and have my own rules. Yeah, like, and especially for my, a lot of my business early on came from newcomers or immigrants or first generation people who, you know, were raised here, but their parents are immigrants. To them, even more so, I think sometimes their whole dream of owning a home is just that important to them because they feel like they've made it in Canada. For right or for wrong, that's what they feel like. And it's, I understand why. And, and I just love being a part of that process. So can you share a quote that's had an impact on you? Absolutely. And one that I recently learned from, Better, not bitter. And I learned that the hard way. I didn't service a, a client to the best of my ability. Sometimes you drop the ball and, and I was really angry at myself, but I just wanted to learn from it. And I heard a quote, if I can mention who, it was from you actually. And I just thought that that really stuck to me. And, and since then, I've been really kind of living by that be better, not bitter kind of mantra in my life and in my brokering life, especially to refer to this one case I was telling you about, you know, basically I was dropped at the altar, you know, the worst nightmare for any mortgage broker. But when I look back at it, I can see why. So I had a recent change in my business, which we hopefully will touch on, which was hiring an assistant. And I felt like I gave my assistant too much of the deal to manage rather than myself. And I've always relied on myself to being that strong sales guy, but the strong kind of like motivator to my client and someone who holds their hand. And I really just dropped the ball. And my client did tell me, you know what, Jake, I don't feel I got that service from you that I was expecting, that I was led to believe I would get. I've never dealt with a broker before. And it was really the first time in a long time that that happened. But instead of focusing on all the things that I did bad, I took it all inside and I thought about it. Okay, how will I never let this happen again? So I could have sat and, and been angry for a couple of hours or days or what have you. And then had that transferred to my other deals, my other relationships, be it work and not work. Mm -hmm. But I didn't let that because I really wanted to say, okay, it's a bitter pill to swallow. I lost that commission. It's my fault. How do I improve that process from day one for the next client? And I reached out to this client and I thanked her immensely saying, I really appreciate you telling me that 
because I will never be better if you weren't so honest. And then so what specifically did you make an adjustment to in your process that will hopefully avoid that from happening? Even though I hiring my assistant has been a great help, I've decided to go back and being the point of contact for everything necessary from start to finish and having her be simply on my more more of on my back end with the transaction rather than have her take the lead after a lot of the process has been done. And that I'm finding, again, much more interaction with the client. And you know what? I focused on kind of getting down to the basics again. This past weekend, I had a client that was really itching to meet before she made a commitment. It was a lot of time. The highways were closed in my area. It was a pain to get to. But I thought, man, I'm going out there and I could potentially have the opportunity to make $4,000. Why would I not do that? Why mm -hmm. would I not you know, go back to square one and kind of be what I was from the beginning, the hustler kind of in the industry. So I did. And, and you know what? I, I secured the deal before I even left because they, they really appreciated that level of commitment. And mm -hmm. so I, that's what I'm trying to improve is just kind of keep things simple, be who I am and not kind of uh, revert to my, my assistant, my help, who has been amazing, but who I want to do more of the, the things like that that will help my clients understand service. Do you have an example of something that you had failed at but now looking back, there was a lesson in it for you. Obviously, this is one example you talk, kind of talked about, but you have another one that... You know what, man? I, I'll tell you, I fail every day, I find. And I fail every day almost in a small part. You know, I fail to maybe follow up or I fail to take on a lead as strongly as I could. One thing that I have recently learned, which I'm very happy about. So I got an opportunity to sit in an office for a pretty big broker in the city, uh, downtown, and they were being very, very aggressive with what they needed back from me, whether it's comp splits or the level of like attention and how often I was there, et cetera. And I feel like I aced the interview, but then I failed because they didn't want, they, ultimately they went with another broker. But in hindsight, I thought, man, I was selling myself short. I was, I was giving them too much and I was kind of not being who I really, I wasn't true to myself. So I decided... I was happy. I talked to my broker, my mentor, John Barges, about it. And he told me, you know, here's what, here's what you should take away from it. And I look back and I mean, that was a great success to fail there, to learn more as to standing up for myself as a broker. Because I find we get asked for too much sometimes from realtor communities, right? Mm -hmm. I found like, wow, I may have failed that, but actually I succeeded in defining what I have to offer. And if an opportunity like that comes again, I need to be from day one, aggressive about how good I am and why I'm the right match and what have you, instead of just taking, 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 you know? Right. So this was an opportunity to be in a real estate office? To be in an office, to be an in-house broker. And, you know, I was very excited, but I didn't see the forest and the trees. I really thought I was only looking at the numbers and not the potential pitfalls. And, you know, on the couple of deals that I've worked with this broker since when I first started and they kind of tested me out, I realized now in hindsight that I am so happy not having met or joined that team. Mm -hmm. Just because I'm just, it's just not at all what the way they presented themselves. And I wasn't, I was so eager to help them and to work there that I wasn't able to analyze, is this the right relationship? So what if someone offers you a certain volume commitment, that doesn't mean their client base is going to work with you, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I learned that the hard way because I wasn't accepted into their team. I got, you know, annoyed by it because I thought I was the best broker in the world. I'm not, obviously. And then in hindsight, I realized, you know what, that was probably a good failure to have because next time I need to take a step back and think before I make my decision or before I offer myself to a, a broker partner or a realtor partner. I've also recently learned about learning when to say no to a file. I have this client who's doing a construction deal who's so 
un, first of all, very demanding, but also unrealistic in their expectations of what the construction financing process is like, where I just cut the fire loose. I said, look, Gary, you know what? I can't help you. This is why I've offered you X, Y, Z. You want A, B, C plus 100. I cannot help you for and these a back reasons. Rub. <laughs> and a back rub. And you want me to visit. And, and you cut want your to lawn. Exactly. Why don't I just frame your house for you, right? I learned really fast because it's not failure if you can't do a deal as long as you can identify why you can't do it. Mm -hmm. And finally, I'm able to say, I can't help you. Done. Sorry, I've put my effort into it. I want to look at the files that are fresh and ready for me to jump on. Right. So, okay, what happened recently when you decided to finally, okay, I'm going to hire an assistant? Nothing. Again, I, I work with John together closely. John's my broker partner, my mentor. He's been around forever. And he just kind of nailed me year in, year out. You know, you got to try it, do it, do it. I, I did it. It was amazing. And I finally listened to him. That's what happened. I finally said, I'm going to let go of everything in the file from start to finish. Mm -hmm. I'm going to focus on what I'm good at. And I'm going to let somebody who's good at compliance do my compliance, who's good at paperwork, do my paperwork. So I know what I'm selling. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I just took a leap of faith. That's what it was. And I really liked her and I really liked her resume. And I decided I'm going to try this. And it's, uh, it's, and my broker always said, don't do it to have more time to yourself. Do it to get more business. Now, right. I haven't done the metrics exactly, but I can tell you absolutely. I have met many, many more people and the clients that I'm meeting and broker realtor partners, but most specifically clients, I'm able to focus more time on my relationships with that client rather than just get in, get out and rush to my next meeting. And it, it actually gets easier to the more the more deals you're doing, the easier it gets, actually, like there's a you sort of get into a rhythm versus if you're just doing three or five a month, I think it's actually harder than doing eight or 10, because you're just doing it more, right? Oh, oh, for sure. And it's easier on the assistant, too. Because, you know, I told her, her job is a nine to five job, I fully respect her family and just three kids. And you know, she's married. But I told her once a month, Twice a month, there might be a time I got to call you at eight to do something really quick. And she's been absolutely on the ball. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't expect her to live under my clock. If I sign a client up at nine o'clock on a Saturday or Sunday or Friday, I don't need her to be around because I know my stuff and I, I just need her to prepare everything perfectly for me so that it's ready and then take over on the back end with the management. So it's, yeah, you're right. I could not imagine now not having one, but it was a tough growing pain. It was a difficult first couple of months in terms of personality. And then expectations, because I expect a lot from myself. I expected a lot from her, and I needed to take a step back and realize, wait a second, this person's not been a broker for 13, 14 years. Of course, they don't know the difference between CMHC and Genworth, right? Mm -hmm. and, and even though they worked in the mortgage industry, they worked in commercials. So they had a lot of skill sets that they brought, but not what I maybe expected. So I just said, okay, let me take a step back and teach them these little things. And I'm learning, I'm seeing she's learning every day still. Mm -hmm. Why order on Solidify versus NAS? Which is better? How to do this? How to do that? Why is this? And she asks great questions. And if your assistant's not asking you questions, they're not doing a good job. Because right. then they're not eager to learn. They need to know what they need to know. Actually, one other thing. So if you knowing what you know now about having an assistant, would you have hired somebody sooner? Uh, I would have hired an assistant. You know, I wouldn't say I would have hired one from day one. Because technically, the way I started with my brother was I was assist assisting him. But I think five years in, I think eight years ago, I would have hired one and I should have. We just should have done it, but we didn't. And now, again, anybody that's listening, I can stress to you, if you're at the mark where you're still doing your stuff and you're busy or you're, you, you're growing your business tremendously, it's not that hard to find good help if you know where to look and how to look for it. 
and it's and it's just so rewarding to have somebody. And you know, this is something we touched on earlier. It's also nice to know that you're helping somebody have a good job. My assistant works from home. She's able to see her kids more. She doesn't commute an hour and a half each day, which is great for her. Mm -hmm. I'm helping her develop as an assistant, but also as an employee and as a family person. And that, you know, that kind of helps me feel good too. And, and I'm, and I'm getting what I'm paying for. I'm getting really good help. So yes, anybody out there who's, who's on the fence about it. Do it, do it, do it. You would be crazy not to. Travel you back 13 years when you first started as a broker and you could give yourself three pieces of advice. What would you tell yourself? Track every deal from day one. Absolutely track it, where it came from, who gave it to you. Take notes on every client. I have this crazy innate ability to remember people's numbers, their details, their dates of birth, everything like that, where when they call me back, I remember their dog, who unfortunately probably died by then, but they, they have this sense of comfort. But if you don't have that, Track it. It's easy. Put it in Excel. Put little notes. Remind yourself that this person's having a baby. Follow up a year later when the baby's born, et cetera, et cetera. That'll give you, you know, plenty of reasons to call people. Secondly, be confident, but be humble. This job can humble you in a second when you get a deal you think you'll do in a moment, and it turns out it's a decline. When you're as busy as you are, never advertise it. And when you're very, very slow, never lament about it. I find too many people when they're busy, they're just like, oh, I'm too busy. I, I can't even talk. I'm so busy. But really, that's good. I'm happy that people are busy. I want them to be. But that's not the end of the world. It's a good thing. Be happy that you're busy. Mm -hmm. uh, and third, you know what? Read as much as you can. I read Facebook. I read, I read my, my uh, uh, BDM's emails back and forth. I read both all trade magazines. I read the Globe and Mail. I read the New York Times. And when I go out to meet people, I, I want to know, I want to know a lot about a little, or sorry, a little bit about a lot. I want to be able to get out there and just tell them to talk about anything because you'll always find a common point of interest with your client, with your realtor, through your experience and through your knowledge, through your reading. So I find that reading really helps me uh, and, it, and it will continue to help me from, you know, as a growing broker. So again, amazing to just hear some of the insights of JCAD, even though it was like five years ago and his willingness to just share with the mortgage community. And this upcoming next section is from episode 295. So that was May 24th, 2021. So that was this year. And JCAD again, brought tons of gold. He bears some advice on sharing your unique voice on social media. He talks about some changes he made to better manage his time. And he gives that script for how to talk to clients about checking their credit. Because as you know, sometimes credit clients are like, oh, I don't want you to check it. Jake has a fantastic script that he uses for that. And then finally, he gives some advice for new brokers. And it's interesting that it's changed a little bit, right? So as obviously your knowledge increases and experience increases, so he's got some new advice for new brokers. Check that out. And then we'll check out the last section. So uh, she came on board five years ago. It was the best decision I made. My former broker, John, was always pushing me to get an assistant. And he said, don't spend your free time playing more tennis. Get an assistant to find more business. And I did that. And uh, she's been outstanding. So because of her, we hit 200 plus last year, just under 320 files, I believe. This year, first quarter was already 90 million. So things have gotten a lot better. I grew my team. I hired an amazing underwriter from one of our lenders, which was a very tough decision for yeah. me to to try to get her on board. But the lender and I, we kind of, you know, things worked out very well. The right. lender was great. The underwriter's great. The support was great. So kind of so, growing, which is great. Where does your business come from? Finding 330 files. Well, I know lots of people in the business 18 years and they're not doing, you know, 300 plus files a year. So 
Tell me. Okay, great question. I'll tell you first where it comes from internally, and then I'll tell you where it technically comes from. Internally, it comes from my background, me growing up, having no money whatsoever, single father worked 18 hours a day, immigrant guy. It comes from me knowing where I never can get back to. It comes from me now having a nine-year-old, 10-year-old, and I love to do everything for him that I didn't have, that I experienced. I don't want him to ever experience. No lunch, no food, crappy life. You know, like it comes from that. So right. my insatiable appetite to keep growing my volume comes from that, never at the expense of someone else. What that means is if I see a deal and if another broker has screwed it up, I will A, fix it, and B, try to tell that broker, here's what happened, or I'm not here to kill the competition. I'm here to play in a sandbox fairly and equitably with everyone. I want everyone to succeed. And then where does it come from? Technically, it comes from 60% realtors. I love my agents, believe it or not. It comes 20% from social media, like on Twitter, I fight every single day and the people who reply back on Twitter hate my guts and call me all sorts of names, but the real fans email me. Hey, I'm too shy to reply on Twitter, but I need to help with my mortgage. I said, I need to help with my mortgage. Twitter is my absolute boon. Instagram, a little Hilarious. bit less, Facebook, nothing, but yeah. Twitter and Instagram are my two ways of getting as much business on social media. Cause it's really my voice. It's really me. Right. Uh, and then of course my clients, my referral partners, my clients within the book, Referrals are another 20, 30% easily, and it's growing like crazy. But realtors are still a top category for me, and that's fine. That's the way I've done my business, and I love right. it. Okay, so there's something somebody said once that there's no money in the middle. So which meaning that if you're kind of like this, really, you don't stand out, you're on Twitter because you'll push and you'll fight with people. You're going to push some people away, but you're going to attract other people, right? Because yeah, and I'm not, and yeah. like for the record, I'm not negative on Twitter. Well, I am sometimes when I get into fights, but I don't have an agenda on there. And I'm not like anti-lockdown, anti-mask. Like I'm not taking some crazy things that I've seen some of my colleagues do. And I think you are crazy. You're not a scientist, you know, <laughs> stick to the script. My tweets right. are about mortgages. And I would say something like, hey, I helped this buyer today. She went to a broker who only got her 540. I got her 600 because I was able to do ABC. 10 messages down will be, you're a jerk. How can you put her into too much debt? You're a loser, da, da, da. And then you know what? I get an email saying, how did you help that person? Because I need that as well. Well, that's because I use two-year bonus, blah, 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 whatever the situation is. So yeah, I'm attracting people who are looking for solutions. Other realtors as well. Hey, I saw you on Twitter. Sounds like you know what you're doing. I need someone. So the people who reply back to me on Twitter are the ones who don't like me, but the real ones who like me are the ones. See, this is this is actually there's a little lesson right in this. So social media, the people that are responding are not necessarily your customers. Absolutely your not. But right? they're the ones that make me look better when I explain to them why they are wrong. She wanted to be put into debt. I'm helping her understand how in a Toronto market, 540 to 600 makes a big difference. And then right. the people replying, but you're bang on. My little Twitter community is not my client base. My client base is the people who follow that community and identify me as a solutions provider, someone who thinks out the box, someone who is willing to give a second opinion with no issues. And so that's a very good point. That's who your audience should be, is not the person who you're scrapping with on social media. If somebody's thinking about changing companies, You've done it a little while ago, and it's a big decision. It's not something people just like take lightly, but like, so what are some of the things they need to think about or consider before they make that kind of move? So certain things that I would tell you is, number one, always go back to where you are and try to work things out if you can, you know? 
propose it, kind of, why is it not working? What can we help? What can we solve, et cetera? Always work with the people you're with now that you've given a lot of time to, because they deserve that respect, right? Second, your data, a very important piece. Make sure that in your new contract, your old contract, you understand who owns what. Number three, contracts themselves. Read them closely, hire a lawyer, spend the money, ask anything and everything you can, because these are all you know, tangible economic relationships. Your brokers put a lot of time and effort into you, not for you to just get up and leave. They want to see a result of that investment, whether you're their best friend or not. They want something out of that, and you want something out of it. So, you know, relationships are based on pen and paper these days, not handshakes anymore. So be very clear with what's in your contract, what you're allowed to do, not allowed to do, et cetera. And yeah, and then just, you know, make the move as and when you can, if you want to. And if not, don't. But those are the kind of two, three things I would say is give the first people a shot, try to work things out, review your contracts, see who owns the data, and figure out a way of migrating things without losing a lot of business or issues in the migration process. Right. And the new place that you're joining, make sure it's really the best place for you. The last thing you want to do is join a new place after, you know, untangling from one and then be like, ah, this wasn't a home for me. Interview, talk to as many people, talk to the agents that are on the new team, talk to your lenders, your BDMs, your underwriters, like everyone who knows. Yeah, you, you're going to have to do a full 360 on them. Yeah, yeah. but it has to be very confidential because you they're, you know, other people know you're leaving. You right, have right. this fine balance of like, who can I trust? Who can I ask, right? And then yeah. you make the move if it's the right move for you. And if not, you don't. And, you know, that's what happened with me. So it is what it is. I grew and right. uh, here I am at Premier. What kind of changes did you have to make in the last year to accommodate COVID and all this stuff? I'm just curious what kind of adaptations you so made to your The business? biggest problem that I've had is that my wife works full-time off-site at her office that she has to go to. It's her business. So it's just managing my relationship with my 9-year-old, now 10-year-old, then 8-year-old during the pandemic. That balance was the toughest. Definitely time blocking. I saw someone posted on the group about what's the best time blocking stuff. Calendly, I literally never pick up the phone anymore. If you don't have an appointment with me in Calendly, I won't answer the call unless we have a scheduled visit because I have to manage my time better like that. I've also tried my very best to weed out, you know, the real applications from the just kicking the tires applications. If I'm giving you 15 minutes of my time, it's very valuable. You're going to get as much value as possible out of that. But I want that person to follow through with an application after. If they don't, you know, I'm not going to chase you like crazy. Done a lot of like client stuff, like magic shows with clients, little Zoom sessions. We're doing a beer tasting with my realtors. I worked from home before and I always will work from home. Another thing Dustin and I totally disagree with. I love working from home. It's very flexible for me to run my business. It's not for everyone. But, you know, I don't have like normal hours. Like I still work weekends, Saturday mornings, I'll take calls till 12. So when people are available, two nights a week, I'll take calls until nine. Otherwise, three nights a week, no calls after five. And then Monday mornings, no calls until noon. And then Fridays from 2 p.m., no calls onwards. I'm managing my two amazing staff with me, Devin and Dallas. I emphasize life versus work. If they call me or email me on a weekend, I'm very grateful for it. I never ask for it. But I won't lie to you, Scott, this year mentally, I always thought of myself as a real strong mental guy, like mental illness. What's that? Depression. Man, like a lot of thoughts go into my brain of how depressed I am about like not meeting people and being social. And it's been tough. And I tell anyone, like if a stubborn old bastard like me goes through this mentally, 
you know, it's all out there and we should all try to kind of keep it, one another afloat or engaged or check up on people just to see how things are doing. There's a lot of stress. Our underwriters, mm-hmm. our BDMs, our VPs, our credit. We just kind of sometimes just take a deep breath. Go for a walk. Go in nature. Be amongst the trees. Leave your phone in the car. Stop checking nonstop. Like, disconnect as much as you're connected so that you get that balance. Because it's been really tough, man. I won't lie to you. It's been a tough slog to grow, to hire, to train, to keep clients happy, to keep referral sources happy, and to keep all the expectations going. Right. You do a verbal on the credit check. Can I check your credit? Is that what you say to them? Uh, no, I, I asked them, uh, can you send me a T4 pay stub and just send me a quick consent that I can check credit? So what's a warning sign that this person's like a tire kicker? What would they say to you? Something like that? Yeah, you know what? I'm not comfortable you checking my credit at this time. Even after the conversation we have, how I say to people like this, I say, hey, Scott, you have $800 in your wallet. Imagine there's a one in a hundred chance that you lose a dollar if I check your credit. Oh, really? It's that? Yeah, it's literally statistically that small, essentially. If they're still like, no, I don't want to check credit, can I send you my credit? Like, no, I'm not looking at your Equifax from Mogo or from other third-party sites. It's not the same thing. That's when I kind of know they're not serious. I'm not proceeding further. I tell the referral partner, look, Scott's not ready. He doesn't want me to check credit. Oh, great. I'll check in with him. Always this happens a day later. Hey, check my credit. (laughs) Because right. Sometimes want, real, okay. So what advice would you give to a new person? So they're starting out and you know, they're not 18 years in with, you know, 60 referral partners. I'm going to say the following. Number one, try to break this down, this business as easily as possible based on how many deals you need to do in your first month in order to get the equivalent of what you just left. So if you were making 75 K a year, that's roughly what? Six grand, 6,200 a month. How many deals do you need to get in the first month to pay for the equivalent amount of work? Number two, you got to give yourself three to six months runway. You got to give yourself a full financial head start. Save up the six months worth of salary to get really started, I think. Otherwise, you might kind of waffle. You might go in and out, which is tough. Right. You go on social media. Do not post articles without giving me your viewpoint. How many brokers go on there and be like, look at this Globe and Mail article? Who cares? What do you have to say about it? Tell me your points of view. Why is it important? Why should I talk to you? If you're on Twitter, if you're on Instagram, why should I talk to you over the 10,000 other people that are out there? The first few months of your business will be amazing because you'll get a lot of friends and family, but you might also take it personally when your friends and family say, you know what? I don't feel comfortable you handling my business. Partner with someone that's a mentor, that's someone who's been at this for 10, 15, 20 years and hand them the business off and say, hey, guess what? You don't want to work with me? That's cool. It's all personal. Let me pass you on to my colleague, Bill. Bill has been around forever. He's my mentor. He won't share any personal details with me if you run into that problem. Number four, we're in a pandemic. It's really busy. Even rookies are making a crazy killing right now. Don't expect that to continue. You know, don't overspend. Don't overinvest. Be smart with your money. Save, save, save. Invest it, invest it, invest it, but don't blow it on cool stuff like a nice fast car and all that other stuff because when the business starts to get a little slower, you won't have that huge book of business. So those are just some things, but ultimately like try to find a brokerage that's going to have a good mentorship program. And I think that will help a lot. I get a lot of young, new, amazing, smart agents reaching me and I'm disappointed that their broker is not answering the most basic questions because they're too busy or what have you. Mm -hmm. You're not in the right place. Maybe there needs to be a better training overall. Maybe there's something's missing in the Yeah, industry. we're putting some thought to that whole, like what you're talking about there is, yeah, I totally agree with you. So we're setting people up for failure, unfortunately. 
All right, so this is the last episode that I did with Jake. It was actually a joint episode with Christine Buman, and Christine is full of energy. You hear her a little bit in this clip, and we dove into the topic of open banking. And so this was episode 303, and it was June 21st, 2021. And have a listen to what Jake has to say, and then I'll come back and wrap up this episode. Jake, what are your thoughts on open banking and how it's going to impact the mortgage community? Look, I share the same frustrations that Christine just said about, hey, you've got the pay stub and it does this. And we just have to be very careful while we know we can automate it. What will that do to us? As in, we're the ones that bring that pay stub into the lender. If post-funding and pre-funding is audited and, and underwriting is audited, how will we get the deals done with a little bit of hair on them? How will we not be able to leverage our relationships? I'm not saying this won't happen. I definitely agree with Christine that it will. I love the idea that there will be a tipping point like immigration or some other kind. It could be a consumer-led tipping point. It could be an industry-led tipping point that will force the hands of our lender partners to finally be more tech-savvy. And I just think we're waiting for that one lender to become that tech-savvy, and some of them already are quite good at it, until... We see others come on board. I'm worried that we're just going to be a very slow dinosaur. And yeah, it's just, it's frustrating, but it's also super exciting to see, to think how much volume we can produce and how much more business we can do with such a transparent and easy system to work with. And if it's immigration, if we have yeah, AI awesome. underwriting the file for you, if you mean. I Why are we Google searching a client? Okay, so we've got this client. Now we're going to look them up on LinkedIn. Does your job letter match your LinkedIn profile? Like, we are so archaic. When you look at how progressive other countries are, like, I think biometrics will also be a thing. So I'll say, hey, Jake, you want to do a mortgage? Because obviously I'll be still mortgage brokering. And you pick up your phone, and then it's just all tied in. It knows it's, you know, through biometrics. We know that this is your face. So it's already tied into your CRA account, your Equifax, all of your verification. And you can also have pre-linked all of your accounts. So you can have predictive, I guess, financial behavior that you could analyze within minutes and say, okay, well, Jake makes X amount per year. However, his spending habits dictate that he should be, you know, looking at financial products such as XYZ. Buy another car, Jake, is what it's saying. <laughs> so so hold on, Christine, I have a question to that. Mm-hmm. So I pick up my phone, boom, you know all my spending habits, which are horrific, by the way. Where do you fit in or me? Where do we fit in to that equation? Because the 15-year-old Jake today that will be a client in 10 years of mine and yours, we both plan on being brokers for that long or longer. Well, they're no longer going to need us because they will have that app in front of them and they'll be so comfortable with it. And that's where I think the tipping point will be. It will be consumer-driven. That's why Nesto has such an influencer rating where people use their app. They're so happy with the lack of friction. And until we have the same technology capability, we'll be potentially left in the dust and or forgotten about. And I'm worried about that. Oh, man. I don't know why I'm always worried. I'm always worried that tech will gobble us up faster than I think it will. But then Christine just said, how come we can't API everything together? Then I get very calm when I realize, even as a consumer, I go to a bank and I try to get something done. Man, these legacy systems that have been implemented over the last dozens and decades of years behind us just don't talk to each other really well. And until they figure out a way of doing that. Most of them are on dial-up, I think. Yeah, like exactly. That's what I mean is until they figure out how they can all start talking to each other and avoid the privacy issues and regulatory issues, et cetera, and figure out the fraud issue, it's going to be a while. So that's the only thing that makes me a little more calm you know, not to worry about open banking as much, but it certainly to me is the biggest threat to our industry and our existence entirely as a whole. 
except for the tough deals, the private deals. And I know a lot of people will say in our comments, well, this is why I only do private business or, well, yeah, even the private space is starting to get to that place where do I really need to call 10 different mix to find out pricing on this? No, obviously now there are some platforms where I can just do it in three seconds. That's happening too in the private space. So don't think that it's just prime brokers that will be eaten up. It's the private world as well, which is far too expensive for what kind of service they're giving. I think as humans, we have a natural distrust of technology as well. So I know it's different for me in a small community because my number one issue that I've had over COVID is that everyone wants to meet person still. So we don't, everybody has their printed documents. They come to my office, they want it to sit in person. So there will always be people who want to be told what to do or to be coached along the way. I've invested in a lot of these different calculators and things that I always send to clients. And the majority of them I find, they don't want to play around with the calculators. They want me to tell them, what do I qualify for? So although this new generation, which I put myself in the millennial category, not that I always identify as a millennial, but I think that they're looking for this quick solution. They're looking to have technology get it done more effectively, I guess. However, they do still want someone to do it for them. So they want somebody to hold their hand throughout the process. And I think that there will still be a role for mortgage brokers. I think that we will have to raise our professional standards if we want to get paid as much as we do, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. And I think we just have to appreciate that every client is coming to us and they might have a thousand questions, but I'd rather them ask me a thousand questions than ask the internet and then get rooted back around to a, an online platform. Right. And that's one of the problems where there's so much information out there that it's actually overwhelming for people. So, you know, unless somebody becomes the go-to trusted brand, which sounds like Nestle's doing a good job of that, but there's so much information that's conflicting that consumers get confused and then confused. They're like, I need to talk to somebody because they're saying this, they're saying that. And so I feel like that also helps us in our industry. Final thoughts on that, Jake? Yeah. If you build trust, you know, the person that's most transparent, I think Christine and I have done a great job in our various communities People will call me all the time and refer to you all the time because you are that trusted source of info. Whether it benefits you or not, doesn't matter. And that professionalism, I agree. And this is going to segue to our third point, sort of professionalism, but I'm worried that the industry is fragmented so much within each other. Like Christine said earlier on, on before our chat was starting to record, there's so much fighting going on, lawsuits, this, that, and the third. And how do we bandy together to fight the bigger powers out there? And I don't know. I don't know how to do that yet. And I'm thinking of ways, but Christina is also thinking of ways. And so are you, Scott. So it seems to me that the reason that there's so much of this fighting is because it's about money. And at the end of the day, it's like everybody wants their piece of the pie. And so what are your thoughts on how do we collaborate better rather than compete? Yeah. So I think as a society, we're evolving rapidly. So this is a question that I ask people a lot. And I really try and think about it in my own life is, what does business mean to you? What does it mean to you when you say, oh, it's just business? Does that give you the right to be an asshole over having a higher ethical standard because money's involved? So for me, I haven't heard anyone actually, and I would love if you guys have some feedback on it. I ask this question to a lot of people is, what does it mean to you when you say it's just business? Does that mean you can screw somebody else over in the name of money? What does that mean? And so for me, I just think that once upon a time, the aggressive behavior, the you know undercutting, those kind of things actually achieved a desired result, which was whatever you're trying to get and winning. Now we have this environment where people are more transparent. We're holding each other to higher standards. And I think that collectively, we need to recognize that we need each other. We need as an industry to stop self-imploding and to support each other 
to be better brokers, better humans. It's never just business, but it really depends on where you are in your financial world, right? I posted a question, what would you do with a million bucks? And some people answered, oh, I'd retire. And I think to myself, if you put your head down after years of hard work, et cetera, it's not difficult to make a million bucks in this industry. If you're a brand new broker, why did you get into this space? Why does everyone get into real estate? To make money. And then the second reason they get into real estate is they want to help people. We should flip that around. We should have people get into this space because they want to help others achieve financial success and empowerment, et cetera. And then I believe the money will come. I just think that as an industry, we are fighting. This broker has access to this lender, but they don't have access to this lender. I hate that. I wish we could all be one unified voice. It's not possible, I know, but it just really bothers me because there are some lenders I don't have access to and I would love to and I would help more people get a better mortgage if I had access to that lender. And what percentage of our decision-making is not just based on it's just business because I'm going to screw my other broker because I got a better rate. It's I'm going to put this client with this lender because they're paying me 10 basis points more. How many times have I heard a colleague of mine say, ooh, I sent this deal to lender X because they pay me $500 more. I'm like, $500 matters to you over the client's happiness? I think the ethical lines need to be further solidified. And that's what I, that's what I think. Most important, be a good human in front of your client. You know, be responsible, be accountable. It's crazy during COVID how many times, you know, things have gone sideways and how many times a client has been like, hey, you know what's happening with my file? And I'll say, look, sorry, it's been a crazy couple of days. No problem. Thank you. Just acknowledge where we're at, treating your staff fairly and friendly and making sure they appreciate and being aware of what's gone on through COVID and not just you, your client, your underwriter, your lawyer, appraiser, all of this stuff. It's been such a crazy balancing act that I'm so glad that we're getting through to it, but hopefully it will carry forward in the collaboration part where if you have a deal that you can help another agent or broker on, on ILMB and they post about it, you know, do your best, try and help out and let's just try to be better. That's it, that's all I can say. All right, so hopefully you guys got a ton of value out of that. I know I did, I listened to every one of those sections again and it's a weird feeling to know that, you know, how precious life is how obviously family is important. Take care of your family, as Jake said. Take care of your team, take care of your family, take care of your clients. Be a better human. I mean, I think ultimately, my experience with Jake anyway was that's what he was all about. So thank you, Jake. Man, this is tougher than I thought. Just thank you for being you. Thank you for sharing. And we really appreciate you and what you did. And we miss, brother. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production. 